And as you do, if you would turn with me to James chapter 1. I joked with the people in Abilene. I told them that I would preach through James for them. And I didn't even finish chapter 1 for them. So we're going to be jumping right into the middle of chapter 1. Uh, James 1 verse 12. But I will be reading starting in verse 1 for context. But actually... I apologize. Would you all stand with me as we hear from the word of God as it is read to us? This is the infallible, inerrant, inspired, holy word of God written for you and for me today. Let us attend to its reading. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave upon the sea, and it is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the living and triune God. Thanks be to him for his word. You may be seated. Blessed is the man. Such language takes us back to the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mountain. There Christ said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. And here we see James offering a beatitude of his own. Though he has already discussed trials and and testings, here James shifts his focus. We previously, or he previously, discussed how the Christian can remain cheerful in the trials that come, not only because of the temporary nature of these trials and the glory that awaits us, but because God can actually use these trials to grow us, to make us stronger. If if you are an athlete at all, you probably understand this quite well, knowing that there is some amount of suffering in any case if you are going to exercise the muscles without pain for a short time, the groan through the growth does not come. So too does the Lord test our faith, and we grow in holiness and in righteousness, building our self-control, our will strengthen to say no to the temptations that come from the sinful world. Yet here, James is going to take a different tone. Here, the emphasis is now on what the Christians must do under such trials. The Christian must remain steadfast. The beatitude of the passage gives us a picture 
of what we ought to attain to. The man who remains steadfast under trial. Just as Christ's Beatitudes in Matthew show us that we ought to aspire towards mercy, towards humility, towards a purity of heart, and the Beatitude found in David's Psalm 1 shows us that we ought to aspire towards reading and delighting in the law of the Lord, so too, now James in his Beatitude gives us a picture of another blessed man, of the one who meets the trials that the Lord has foreordained him for and perseveres through them. In this solitary verse in James 1, or verse 12, James teaches us three things about what we must do when the trials come toward us. Number one, he teaches us that we indeed must remain steadfast, even though the trials may tempt us or break us, or tempt us to break from the faith or walk away from the church. Number two, he then gives us a reason for this. He speaks of a reward. He speaks of a crown of life. And thirdly, that we can be sure of such reward from God. For God has promised reward to all those that love him. And indeed, all God's promises are sure. So if this is indeed his promise, then we can indeed be sure of this crown of life that James speaks of. So let us dive into our text this morning as we examine how the Christian remains steadfast. Firstly, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses three analogies when he refers to trials and sufferings that the Christian goes through. Sharing suffering, he says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete, Paul says, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer, he goes on, who ought to have the first share of the crops. What is similar about all three of these professions? Is it the good soldier who meets the terrors of war and then turns tail and runs away from the advancing enemy? Surely not. Is it the good athlete who works out for a week but then gives up out of sloth? Indeed not. And is it the good farmer that sleeps in out of laziness, who sells the farm after the first devastating summer or terribly cold winter and destroys his, destroys his crop? Certainly not. So it is, then, if we are reading Paul, with the Christian. Blessed is the man, James says, who remains steadfast. The trials come as a test. They are not for the faint of heart, but they accomplish two things here for the Christian in his life. They accomplish the building up of one's faith, like exercise for the athlete as they continue in their Christian walk. And two, they distinguish the Christian from not only the non-Christian, but maybe who we might even describe as the almost Christian, the one who professes the faith, but disown him when the trials come. Well, let us 
jump into point one here. How does it build up our faith? How is it that these trials build us up? Because they seem to want to tear us down. They seem to be there to dissuade us from doing righteous things. From dissuading us from believing in Jesus Christ and worshiping Him with the saints on Sunday morning. So how does this work? Well, James has already made reference, or at least alluded to, the refiner's fire. The fire that a metal worker uses with a lump of metal that comes out of the ground. Which looks more like a rock when you originally take it out of the ground. And has small pieces of metal within it, yes. But in order for the metal to be usable, in order for you to be able to shape the metal toward whatever end you have in mind, you must get what is known as the dross out of the metal. The dirt, the rock, the other things that are useless in the crafting of tools. And so in order for that to happen, it must be put under a great fire. And so, too, we see fires here, don't we? These trials that come, it strengthens us. Veteran Christians know well that after standing in one trial, it makes it easier to face the next. Our faith becomes strengthened, even if by a little bit. We learn to pray more, to read the scriptures more often. We learn more of God and we love him. All the more, because he has brought us through the trial. We are even better equipped to help others who are on similar journeys in their lives. As they go through trials of their own, and we can come alongside them. Yet none of these would be true if there were no trial. If Christianity were a cakewalk, the product would be similar to what we see in the heretical teachings of the prosperity gospel. People would flock to it as if they had come upon some magic spell that would give them health and wealth and all the riches they could possibly desire. But then they would turn and flee quite quickly when they actually realized that this life still has trials. This is not the walk that Christ calls us to. We are united to him. And this is not anywhere close to the life that he lived when he was on this earth. He did not have all the riches and all the health that he, that many men would like. And 2 Corinthians puts it this way for us. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. No, Christ does not promise to us if we are to come to him great riches and great wealth and an easy life. But he does promise us something, doesn't he? You see, Christ embarked on a great journey, one that was wrought with suffering and with ridicule from his opponents, and one that ended in a torturous death. And we are united to him. We bear his name proudly when we call ourselves Christians. We are his. We ought not be surprised, then, when trials come our way. We ought instead to do what? We ought instead to count it joy, knowing that we are being made stronger. We are being strengthened, being made fit for the reception of a glorious crown of life. And as the verse continues, if we indeed are united to Christ in his sufferings, we also share in his comfort. He does not leave nor forsake us, brothers and sisters. And so our union to him gives us great comfort indeed, as his spirit is active within us. 
Thomas Manson put it well in his commentary on James when he said, In the temple, in the building of the temple, the stones are first carved and then hewed. The sound of the hammer might not be heard, so that the sound of a hammer may not be heard in God's house. So the living stones are first hewn before they are set in the new Jerusalem. So, brothers and sisters, as we consider these trials, let us also consider that God is working upon us, that He is using these trials toward a good and happy end, that He is building up His church, that we, like great soldiers fighting in the midst of a battle, are indeed fighting a battle, but the victory is up ahead as we are being crafted into citizens of that new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth as it comes towards its fruition. But if this is the first use of these trials, what is the second use? Well, the second is that it distinguishes the Christian from the almost Christian. Not all men in the church are Christian. This has always been true, and it will remain true. It is a scary fact of the matter at times that the Lord uses trials not only as a fire's fire to sanctify us as individuals and remove the sinful dross in the individual's life, but it pleases him to use such fire to remove dross from his church. We have seen this throughout church history. Though we look back to great men of the first few centuries of the church, some of the greatest apostasies in church history took place as Roman soldiers came begging down doors to haul off people to the arena. arena. Many people chose instead to give over the books, to give over the scriptures, and to deny the faith than be hauled off and be taken to the arena. The Reformation was not without a great fire as well, was it not? The, great, the Reformation swept like a great fire throughout Europe, and many, but many entire churches refused to leave the arms of the Roman pontiff. Yet what do we see with such a fire that swept through Europe? The Reformation was also a time when God raised up some of the great giants of the faith. Many of them took notes from their forebears of the pagan empire of old Rome, and face this new Rome with equal fervor as they played the man and were tied to stakes and burned for their commitments to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, are we prepared, if it pleased God, for such fires to come to the church today? Would you count yourself lucky to be amongst the faithful if persecution came our way? We do not pray for such torture, nor do we seek it, let us not fall into the trap of glorifying martyrdom and suffering, as even many in old Rome did, allowing a cult of saints to grow up around and reverencing the survivors, giving them far greater authority than the scriptures warrant. We ought to pray that God would be merciful to our people and to our country. Yet God is the master playwright of history. We are to pray for his blessing, but pray also for strength and fortitude, to be faithful to him regardless of what he brings our way. For we know that whatever the tides of history bring, that God is working all things out 
for our good and for his glory. We may not know if we are standing, to use a phrase I've used before, upon the parapets of the Alamo or riding on the fields of San Jacinto. But we know the result of whatever battle we are in. And that result is the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. So my question to you now is this, dear Christian. When that fire comes, are you ready? When it comes to this church even, are you ready? Will you play the man and stand against whatever comes against us? Will you sit by your brothers and sisters through the trials, whatever they may be? Will you say with Polycarp as he faces the lions, These six and eighty years have I served Christ, and he has never done me harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Well, let us take a great courage, brothers and sisters, and move on as we see what awaits us. What awaits those who are faithful? Well, indeed, it is a crown of life. James says in the second part of our verse this morning, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, what is this crown of life? Different commentators disagree on what this crown could be. Is it a, is it a physical crown? This seems quite doubtful as he calls it a crown of life. The word crown is used throughout the New Testament and, and more than that in the classical world to denote a reward of some kind. Harkening back to the Olympic Games when a runner would receive a crown after finishing a long and arduous race. Paul makes this allusion quite explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that just as athletes receive crowns that are perishable, that we Christians receive one that is imperishable. What James and Paul refer to here is not that upon entering glory in our resurrected bodies that God is putting an actual crown upon our heads, though he, he may do so. Perhaps God will, perhaps he will do such a thing, but there seems something more profound that James is speaking to here when he speaks of this crown of life. Now calling it a crown of, of life is a, is a clue itself. The crown is a reward, and the reward is life. Obviously, we are living right now, so what is this life that he is referring to here? Life eternal. Life that does not end. A life without the pains and the sufferings that James is discussing. There, there in that life, there will indeed be no need for such trials and testings. Yet that, far, that life is far better than mere endlessness. It is far better, even, than mere sinless and painless living. It will be a fellowship with the God of this universe, the triune God that created us, untainted by sin. As Augustine rightly said, to know God is life itself, and there we shall experience such life to its utmost as all the dross has been burned away, and as we stand in the presence of our great God and King, our Savior Jesus Christ, as he sits there in the new Jerusalem. Now does this mean that we receive the crown because of our good works, because we were so strong as to have made it through the testings, 
Surely not. The man of God gains all that he has spiritually from God, not from his own merits or efforts, because our salvation is totally earned by us? No, by Christ. Our salvation comes from Christ. John Calvin put it this way. He said, But the re- they reason absurdly who hence infer that we, by fighting, merit the crowd. For since God has gratuitously appointed it for us, our, finally owner, our fighting only renders us fit to receive it. The man of God is being made fit for heaven. He is being sanctified. The spirit within us continues to remind us of who we are now in Christ. The sons of the living God, not sons of wickedness or sons of the devil. We are not freed to sin, but we are freed from sin. To this end, we are freed to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. We stand strong because we are given strength. But what does this look like to stand strong? But we stand strong against the persecutions from the world. We do not cave. We, like the good soldier, stand strong beside our brothers, even in the onslaught of a great enemy coming toward us. In 2 Timothy, Paul speaks to this in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Of his friend and co-laborer, Demas, having loved this present world, he has deserted me. So often do we see this happen. But let it not happen to us. When the persecutions come from the world, it can become too easy to do so. When the Muslims invaded the Holy Lands in the early Middle Ages, as well as great portions of the Eastern Roman Empire and the entirety of the Spanish Peninsula, they made it impossible to become government officials at any level unless you were a Muslim. While they did not take the Romans' approach all of the time, They made life difficult, also imposing special taxes and making it impossible to attain other jobs for Christians. And there was, unfortunately, a mass apostasy behind the Muslim lines. Many Christians shifted to becoming Muslim because they could gain influence in their society, because they could could live lives that were more convenient. Some because they felt even that they just had to provide for their family. Whatever the reason, its effect was that the ruler was exactly what the rulers of such a caliphate wanted. Generations later, their empire was far and wide majority Muslim. Today, we are not being thrown to the lions as the Romans did, but many would still like to squeeze Christians in more subtle ways, making it hard to keep job, to teach Christian beliefs in schools and in universities, or to hold to certain countercultural beliefs in the workplace, though they be, of course, biblical beliefs. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever persecutions may come our way, however our culture continues to try to squeeze Christianity out of our society, I beg you to stay, stay strong. Be strong and hold fast, not only for our sake, but for the sake of of future generations, and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who commands nothing less of us. But we are not only given strength against the world, 
We are given strength against trials and tribulations. We trust in God even when we suffer loss and hardship. Apart from the world's persecution, there are trials we go through in this life. For the non-Christian, such trial seems pointless, a mere happenstance. They must go through sickness, through loss of loved ones, through natural disasters, and they believe that there is no creator behind it all. It is merely a force of chaos. But for the Christian, even this is a chance for our Lord to strengthen us. We learn to trust him when our bodies and minds prove frail and are forced to be on our knees more often in prayer. But then when he provides the healing, we learn that we ought to have been so often in prayer in the first place. For we need his strength and comfort in good times and in bad. When we lose a loved one, we weep for the loss. We pray for comfort, and the Lord indeed gives. And when someone else goes through a, something similar, we learn, we learn to weep with those who weep, as the scriptures say. And the Lord uses us to provide comfort to each other. Such loss, though, though tragic, brings the church close together as we support and comfort one another. And when a natural disaster comes, though we may be distraught at the loss of property, we also learn to be humble, knowing that we are not building towers of Babel for ourselves, but that the Lord is always and sovereignly in control. And this is the one, this Lord is the one who is building his church, using us as his humble instruments. And so we learn to rejoice. We learn that we can rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And thus the Christian shows great joy in the midst of suffering. Now, as the Christian should rightly know, we are not to run headlong into suffering as if to seek it. But we rejoice when the trial comes. Why? Why do we rejoice? Because our Lord is sovereign and he continues to grow us and to protect us, and to comfort us. For we are his soldiers, and he is our general, and he leads us to victory. The brave soldier does not seek to run foolishly into battle on his own, but counts it a great honor to be commanded into battle by his general, even if it means great wounding or even death. There is no shame in it. So too with the Christian. And as we push on, despite the suffering, what keeps us going? How can we be so sure that this crown of life, this eternal life, this life with the everlasting God who created us, how can we be sure that we will receive such at the end? Well, James tells us. He says, which God, these crowns are that which God has promised to those who love him. And brothers and sisters, God's promises are sure. God's promises are yes and amen. There is nothing that God promises that does not come to pass. Adam learned this the hard way, didn't he? In Genesis, God commanded Adam not to eat of tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying that in that day he would surely die. Now, he did not die physically until later, but he died spiritually that day. 
and all of his posterity inherited such spiritual death. He became dead in his trespasses and sin, unable to save himself. But of course, God promised something else, didn't he? God promised to him, then there was a promise of not only a curse, but a blessing that was to come. That though the ground would be cursed on his account, that there would be one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. He even continued to promise of this one, of this head crusher, to the children of Israel. Time and time again, he reminded them of this promise. He continued to remind them that they were being taken to a promised land. And though they were being taken to the promised land of Canaan, and though they did go, was there something else that they were looking forward to? Indeed, what they were looking forward to is what we are looking forward to. The new heavens and the new earth rest amongst God's people in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And then, most of all, he promised, he even promised to David that a son of his would sit upon the throne forever. Now, is David's sons physically sitting on the throne in Israel right now? No, of course, the line of David failed in a human sense, or at least in the sense that we look to in the scriptures. But Jesus, is he not a son of David? He is literally descended from the line of David, and is he reigning? Indeed, he sits on a throne even now. And as we say in the, the creed, his kingdom shall have no end. Brothers and sisters, time and time and time again, God promises throughout the scripture something to his people, and he continues to deliver. This is why even David can write in Psalm 2, hundreds and hundreds of years before the sun comes. He can tell the nations what he says, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion. David had trust in the promises. He trusted that there would be a king that would sit upon the throne whose kingdom shall have no end. And that king of kings is reigning even now. And brothers and sisters, this should be great comfort to us. As we consider whatever trials and suffering come our way, it should be such a comfort as we pray to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, as he sits enthroned even now. So brothers and sisters, as we consider our calling, as, consider, as we consider how must we remain steadfast as James commands us here, let us be the good soldier. Let us march forth. If such promises are sure, then what have we to lose? There is a war set before us. Not a war with guns and bombs as the world sees it. Yes, a spiritual war. There are souls that need to be won. There are nations that need to be called to repentance. There are men and women that need cycling. Christ told us to go into the world and to teach all people all that he had commanded them. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Did he give us such a command that we would fail? No, he gave us such a command that he would strengthen us to fulfill. As he is our general, as he leads us forward into battle, let us therefore take up our swords, take up the scriptures, and march forward following our general. For brothers and sisters, the gates of hell are just up ahead, and they shall not prevail against us. Let us pray to our great God and King.